And I want to say thanks to uh, Jeremy for helping us understand how the gospel is being placed in a cultural context there in, in Peru. Wasn't that, a, wasn't that a, a neat experience to participate in, uh, to, to perhaps look at the bread and cup in a little bit of a different light? Now, one of the challenges that you have whenever you go into a, a new country, a new culture, dealing with uh, new generations is trying to figure out how do you contextualize something in a way that is going to bring meaning so that you're not just going through motion, so that you're not just um, doing something that's just out of rote memory. Instead, it's something that truly is impactful. And so I can, I can picture in my mind now the, the 20 or so who are going to be uh, together this morning in Wankayo as they are going to be toasting Christ is Lord. And it was a joy to be able to do that along with you here also this morning. Because let's be honest, when you go into different cultures, when there are different, when there are different um, contexts that you are placed in, it can be very difficult sometimes to contextualize what it is that you're actually trying to, to discuss. And, and there can be mistrust, there can be anxiety. I have a picture here that was taken almost 25 years ago back when I had hair. <laughs> it's taken in Donetsk, Ukraine. And I would love to be able to tell you the name of the gentleman that I'm standing with, but his name is lost in the history of my mind. Here's what I can tell you about him. He was a longtime member of the Russian military. He fought in World War II. He was a part of the Russian response to the invasion of the Soviet Union by Germany. He spoke Russian, Ukraine, German, and a little bit of English. And when I arrived in his flat in 1994, he was just a few years removed from living under what was known at that time as the Soviet Union, the, the communist rule there in that part of the world. And he had spent his adult life being suspicious, if not hating Americans. I mean, that's what he grew up in. And I had spent my childhood feeling the same about him and his relatives and his countrymen. Because I had grown up in a society where most of the bad guys on televisions were Russians. And the, the hockey team that you wanted to beat was from where? The Soviet Union, right? And, and I, I can remember growing up and knowing that as a member of the United States of America, as a citizen of this country, that our enemy, in my mind, was the Soviet Union. And then in 1994, I went with a small team to Donetsk, Ukraine to, to teach character lessons in the schools. And this gentleman opened his home to me so that for two weeks I would have a place to stay. Now the funny thing is, remember I told you that he could speak Russian, he can speak Ukrainian, he can speak some German, and also a little bit of English. He would forget which language I spoke. 
And so in the mornings when I would wake up, he would go, Guten Morgen. Dotsvidanya? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> you know, he, he would work through them all until he finally could remember exactly the language that I was going to be able to, to respond in. And we had a very difficult time communicating. I remember one of the first nights there, I was uh, preparing for bed, so I had gone in to run a bath, and as I got there and looked at the nozzle that was there on the bathtub, there was some type of extension, shower extension that was on it, and even though I turned all the knobs, I could never get the water to run out. Just couldn't figure it out. Maybe it was all backwards. I, I don't know how they were doing it in Ukraine. And so I, I go to the door and I, I call for him and he comes down the hallway and he, he walks inside and he, he bends over and he starts twisting knobs and, and sure enough, there was water. And I smiled and, and I thanked him and um, you know, yes, a wonderful, you know, thumbs up, went through all the different, you know, sign languages, you know, baseball signs, everything to let him know that I was very thankful for what he had done. He leaves. I draw my bath. I'm in the middle of taking my bath and the door to the bathroom opens and he walks in and he comes in and he kneels down beside the bathtub and he takes that shower nozzle and he begins to hold it over my head so that I might bathe. And I tried in all of my English and German and Russian and Ukrainian, any language that the Spirit might give me at the moment to tell him I was good. <laughs> I got this down, I'm fine. But in his humility and hospitality, he was not afraid to risk my embarrassment to come and hold the shower nozzle over my head. And it was at that moment that I realized that God's grace shows up in the most unusual places. Maybe it's what Elijah experienced one day when he was told to go to see a widow, she was on hard times. The famine had been affecting the land in great ways. A famine that Elijah was responsible for, by the way. He had been hanging out at a brook, but the brook dried up. And so what was he going to do? And so the Lord said, go to a widow in Zarephath because I have instructed her to care for you. Just like the gentleman on the screen, her name is lost to history. But Elijah arrives and finds her and asks for help. She conveys her predicament and how that she only has a little bit of flour, just a little bit of oil left. She's about to go and bake one last meal, serve it to her and her son. And then she says, we are going to die. And I want you to see how Elijah responds in 1 Kings chapter 17. He says in verse 13, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I suppose there are always two choices, right? Fear or faith. He says, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make me a small loaf of bread. And then you bring it to me, and then I want you to go and make some for 
yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So here's the woman. She's got a tough time. She has very limited resources and she has to face an important question. Can I trust God's grace? Can I trust God's grace? She was not an Israelite. She did not understand the idea of of Yahweh, the God of, of Israel. Her knowledge was very limited. And you know, maybe you're a new Christian this morning, or maybe you're Maybe you're just a disciple. You're you're, you're trying to decide how far to go in following this man, Jesus. You're on the outside, so to speak, looking in. And you wonder, and you're struggling. Can God be trusted with this new life? If you walk away from those who are poor influences on you, will God open the door for more healthier relationships? If you reorder your priorities, will God bring success, if you invest financially in his kingdom, will he see to it that you have enough money for the basics to be able to get by? Can God be trusted? See, it's the question for everybody. You have to decide if God's grace can be trusted. Those of you who have been witnesses to the grace of God for for many different years, maybe decades even, need to be answering the same question. Can the grace that initially brought salvation be trusted to maintain my salvation? Will I trust his faithfulness more than my own? Or will my obedience become more important than his? Can I trust God's grace? So here's what I want us to do just for a few minutes. Let's gaze into the portrait of grace that's here in 1 Kings. And allow some principles to become clear. Look back again, 1 Kings chapter 17, this time in verse 15. It says, the woman went away and did as Elijah had told her. And there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry. In keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Some takeaways. Already mentioned one. God often reveals his grace in unusual places and ways. Elijah was commanded to go into the heart of what was known at that time as the area where Baal worship was birthed. It was, it was the very land that had birthed the false religion that the Israelites currently were struggling to deal with. And he was to go and depend on a widow there who had very little means, who had very little future, who was facing starvation. She was from the outside when it came to the circle of God and his people. And in fact, the very nation that she was a part of, there in Sidon, the very place where she was raised, the very place that she was living, were responsible for the forces that were standing up right then against the kingdom of God. Elijah was asked to go into enemy territory. He was asked to go again into a land where where he knew where he stood. He knew who the good guys were. He knew who the bad guys were. 
And so you have to ask, why does God send him to a place like this? Why not just allow Elijah to receive strength in a more comfortable setting? Why not send him to a rich family in, in Israel? Why not do that? Here's the reason that I've come up with. I believe God chose to demonstrate around the table of, of this widow and her son and this prophet. Three unlikely dinner guests, God was demonstrating that his grace knows no cultural, racial, or religious barriers because God's grace has no boundaries. No boundaries. The grace of God is not held hostage by language or color or creed. And his messengers of grace may not always share your background or, or have your traditions or hold to your beliefs. He reminded me of this about, oh what, seven years ago this month, April 27th, the tornadoes that uh, came through uh, North Georgia and also on up into Apison. If you were here at that time, you remember that um, the neighborhood that our family lives in, were, it was hit pretty hard. Our home was, was damaged. And uh, among other things, we had tons of trees that were, that were in our backyard. That was the time that I knew um, Johnny Robertson had hair until that, that week. He did. Because he came and worked it off in my backyard uh, with a chainsaw. And I'll never forget that. Because I was at a loss of what to do with just all of the destruction that was around and trying to figure out how do I clean up. The house was going to get put back together. We'd already talked to the insurance adjusters and the contractor had been on site. But how in the world were we going to clean up that mess? And many of you responded in different ways. And I met some of you for the, the first time during that experience and put names with face. And I also met a group of Mormon men who came by one day and said, we have eight chainsaws. Can we help in any way? And I said, I've got a backyard that is in need of some mighty chainsaw work. He said, we'll be back in the morning at eight o'clock and we'll stay till it's done. I didn't know the guy. I'd never been to any type of service with the Mormons? Oh, I'd heard a lot of things just like you had. But at eight o'clock the next day, eight chainsaws showed up. And for the entire day, all you heard in the backyard was and they worked and they worked and they worked until the job was done. And when the job was done, they came and asked if they could pray with me and they left. I never saw them again. They never came back and knocked on my door, didn't send me any email, didn't. They were messengers of God's grace at a moment when I truly was in need. And we don't share the same beliefs, we do not have the same traditions, our background is totally different. But on that day, God reminded me of a biblical truth that I have struggled hard with through my life and that I needed to see more clearly. God's grace has no boundaries. And He uses His grace in unusual ways and places. 
You see, God can pour His grace upon a widow in Sidon, just like He can pour out His grace on a teacher in Mexico, a Baptist or Methodist in Chattanooga, a politician in Washington, or a taxi driver in Peru. Borders, nationalities, and churches do not hinder God's grace. That's why Paul would write to Titus and say, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Not certain people, not certain groups, not certain sections, not at certain times, not in certain locations, not with certain languages or cultures or backgrounds, but that the grace of God has appeared that comes bringing salvation to all people. And that's why here at East Brainerd, our church family consists of English and Spanish speakers. It's why blacks, whites, and browns share the same stage. It's why men and women, young and old, sing with one voice. And it's why those who grew up Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, and Church of Christ or nothing are able to stand and say, Christ is Lord. And share communion as one body. Because God's grace knows no boundary. In church, neither should you. Neither should I. When it comes to be an instrument of that grace. And so how do you live that out in your life? Well, I believe that my genera- generosity is an indicator of my trust. God asked the woman to give Elijah the very thing that she needed the most. She had the flour, she had the oil she was going to bake as she said, one last thing of bread, share it with her son, and then they were going to die. It was her greatest treasure. It was their most valued commodity. And to be asked to give it to an Israelite of all people, an Israelite. I wonder what the gentleman thought when he was told that a young American was going to be coming and staying in his flat. A young American that couldn't appreciate his background, a young American that had been raised to see him as the enemy, a young American that was going to come in and share his bath, share his table. I wonder what he thought. Maybe she should have just gone and and made some for herself. And, And then if there was enough flour, if there was enough oil, make something for Elijah. But she didn't. And here is something that jumps out to me. The reason I believe that generosity is an indicator of my trust is because I believe that it is morally impossible for God to bless seconds. It's morally impossible for God to bless seconds because if he did that, he would be saying that there is something as important or more important than him. And God can't do that. And so if you or if I give God leftovers, he can certainly use them to bless other people, but I will not receive the blessing from God because God cannot bless seconds. I heard about an African missionary who once knew an old woman who made her living making bean cakes. She was involved in an accident that left her severely injured and she was not able to make the cakes for some time and and her flour and oil dried up. Her money was gone. But when she was healed, when her health had returned, she decided that she would go back to making the cakes again. And she told the missionary that she was so thankful for the healing that had come from God that even though in the past she had normally given 10% of what she had made from her cakes, in the future she was going to give 33%. 
That was the decision that she had made. She said, the Lord will receive one third of all I make and I hope that my first week back to make three shillings and I will give the Lord one. A few days later, she returned to the missionary and she said, here's the Lord's shilling. He was very surprised that she'd be able to make those three shillings that quickly and he questioned her about it and she said, oh oh no, I haven't made three shillings, I've only made one. This is the Lord's. I'll keep the next two. She gets it. She gets it. That God never asks for leftovers. Because it does not take faith to give him seconds. You understand? Faith is judging God faithful. Faith is living with the belief that God is trustworthy. And hard times does not excuse weak faith. Hard times are an opportunity to choose faith. And I am hard pressed to believe that at the end of life, we will come to a point where we say, you know what? I just trusted God too much. I trusted God too much with my family. I trusted him too much with my health. I trusted him too much with my money. I just trusted God too much. You see, his agenda and his kingdom and his treasure come first. And the way that I show that is through the faithful stewardship of my flower and my oil, my prized possessions, my treasures. I share without judging who or what is worthy. You know, the monetary offerings that we give each week, those collections might go to support the different ministries that take place here at East Brainerd. But first and foremost, our monetary offerings serve as a measure and a depth of our trust. We do not give a weekly offering so bills can be paid around here. We give a weekly offering so that trust can be displayed. How well did you do a few minutes ago? How well did you do? How much trust did you display when you went online this week and entered in your offering? When you made the decision of how much you were going to give before you came this morning? When you go back, maybe you haven't given yet, maybe you, you use our kiosk that's in the lobby. How much trust have you already demonstrated with the idea of what you think you're already going to take out of your account? Our monetary offerings are a way for us to demonstrate our trust. The good that our money might do in the future is secondary to the trust and the faith that our monetary offering displays right now. That's why we have this opportunity for giving each and every week. Sure, it, it accomplishes a goal of being able to help with, it comes to missionaries and ministries and keeping the lights on, all the different things that go on here with our East Brainerd family, but more than anything else, it gives you an opportunity each and every week to sign on the dotted line, here is who I trust. Here's who I trust. And you say, well, I give in other ways. Awesome. But giving of your time and service does not relieve you of your responsibility to bring God the first fruits of your monetary harvest. Why? Because it's your flour and it's your oil. It's what you treasure the most. You see, when I give God my first fruits and I'm declaring that I'm going to trust his character more than I trust my fears. That's what the woman had to decide, right? Who are you going to trust more? This God of the prophet Elijah, or are you going to trust your fears because you see the oil and you see the bank account number, right? Who are you going to trust? 
And so am I going to believe what the Bible says about God and let that determine how I live? Or am I going to worry about the headlines? Am I going to worry about the economy, the stock market? What the Bible says about God's mission should impact our lives more than what culture says about another's worth or about another's value. And as a church, each of us must choose whether or not to give God our first fruits when it comes to our money, when it comes to our time, when it comes to our talents and service. And our choice is whether or not we believe that we can trust God when the flour and the oil run low. Will God provide more? Can his grace be trusted? I think there's one more biblical principle that we find here. And if you've been writing down, make sure you fill this one in. God is willing to bless what I am willing to release. It's what Jesus also taught in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. He said, give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over, poured into your lap. The amount that you give will determine the amount that you give back. God returns whatever it is that you and I are willing to release. And by the way, this isn't in, just in the context of money. You understand, right? When Jesus makes this statement, he's speaking of a larger spiritual context. Look at verse 36. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not be condemned and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Here's the point. What is it that you desire more of from God? More mercy? Then show some. You feel as if you need more forgiveness? Then give some. What blessing is it that you are more from God? You're only going to receive to the point that you're willing to give away. If it's more joy, if it's more peace, do you want more spiritual understanding of his word? What is it that you want? God is not going to give it to you if you are going to hoard it away. Because he intends for our blessings to be used to bless others. He doesn't bless hoarders. He blesses givers. And so he is willing to and even eager to reward whatever it is that you and I are willing to release. You know, God's grace, it will show up in the most unlikely of places in your life. It will be displayed with the people that you least expect it. And the expectation is that you will freely give whatever it is that you have freely received. But here's your parting thought. Will you trust that God's grace will not run out? You see, your obedience is to trust that God's grace is enough. That's your obedience. Trusting that God's grace will not run out. That it's not going to run out when you come to the end of your life and you look back and say, have I done enough? The answer is, no, you haven't. But God's grace is enough, and it will not run out. You wonder when you look at decisions that you have made that have gotten you to the point that you are at right this very moment, and you're perhaps broken down, and you're confused, and maybe you're feeling a little bit guilty, and you wonder, is there enough grace for me? Can God's grace be trusted with my sinfulness? Can God's grace be trusted with my lack of faithfulness? And over and over again, 
in picture after picture of Scripture, the gallery of grace screams out and says, there's enough. There's enough grace for one more. There's enough grace for one more widow. There's enough grace for one more widower. There's enough grace for one more teenager struggling in their relationships. There's enough grace for a husband and wife, one more. There's enough grace for a Bible class teacher wondering if they should continue on. There's enough grace for a father and mother wondering how to raise the children in a way that honors God. There's enough grace for those who wonder, will God listen to my prayer? There's still enough grace for you who are very tired and worn out. There's enough grace if you think that you're at your very end. We're going to sing and encourage one another with a song that's called, I Need You Every Hour. I don't know what happened to the gentleman that I met almost 25 years ago, but I hope that he learned to trust me as much as I learned to trust him. And perhaps he also was able to see the grace of God. May others see it in you this week. If you need to come, whatever your need might be, run, don't walk. There's plenty of grace as we stand and sing.